Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, well, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Rees listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off, visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them. And I hope you will, too. Today kicks off a two-part special series of episodes in which I will read one of my very favorite authors, Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison was a Nobel laureate and a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. She began her writing career relatively late in life. She had already had careers as a wife, as a mother, as a college professor, and as an editor, first of textbooks, and then moving to New York to become the first black female editor of fiction at Random House. While she was there, she helped shape the early works of Angela Davis and Black Panther leader Huey P. Newton, among others. When her first book, The Bluest Eye, was released in 1970, I was an impressionable 13-year-old, and my worldview shifted forever from that day forward. The story that I'm reading today and next week is one of only two short stories she ever published, though she published, of course, many more works of fiction um, with novels. But a lot of people don't know about her nonfiction. Um, her final two books were both in the nonfiction realm. The Source of Self-Regard, a collection of essays considering art, race, and identity, and the other is a collection entitled Goodness and the Literary Imagination, which includes a lecture that she gave at Harvard Divinity School on the nature of goodness, how easily it's overshadowed by evil, and she also talks about why goodness has been such a significant part of her work. Now, today's story, Recitative, begins in a children's home in New York State in the 1950s and explores the bond between two young girls, one black and one white, as they grow up and grow older. Now, if you've heard of this story, it could be because of the premise. Miss Morrison once said that it was an experiment in the removal of all racial codes from a narrative about two characters of different races for whom racial identity is crucial. And Ms. Morrison beautifully 
purposefully, skillfully writes these characters and this narrative so that we have no choice but to map our own experiences and inferences onto them. Now, before I get started, I I wanted to share something with you. I was asked last fall to pay tribute to Toni Morrison at the PEN America's annual gala. And when I was first asked to give some remarks on the life and work of Toni Morrison, I was, of course, flattered and, and, and excited. And then reality set in and, <laughs> and then I became terrified. Um, how, how and in, in what universe am I worthy to talk about the, the life of one of our literary giants? In any case, um, it, it, it turned out to be a, a, a wonderful exercise for me in, in, in focus and in concentration. And I think um, at the end of the day, I was fairly proud of it. So I'm going to share a little bit of that with you now. Her stories celebrated those living in the margins, the invisible and the oppressed. She elevated us with her prose illuminating in the process the deep and abiding humanity of her characters. She was a voracious reader. She reveled in the written word. She wielded words like a sword and shield, slaying the dragons of racism, sexism, exclusion, and discrimination with dispatch and extreme prejudice. She was a colossus, standing astride the worlds of both the black community and that of the literary cognoscenti. She was fluent in the language of both constituencies, yet confined by neither, rising instead to the level of master interpreter of humanity and our condition, the depravity and divinity of both body and soul. Growing up, it was not all that common for me, a chubby, bespectacled bookworm of a kid, to encounter heroes in the pages of the books I devoured who looked like me. Toni Morrison was a revelation. She wrote about people in places and situations that were familiar to me. Like my own mother, she was a daughter of the Midwest, and in her writing, I could hear the rhythms and speech and familiar turns of phrase used by my aunts, uncles, and cousins. She chronicled the great migration of black people up and out of the clutches of the South and our movement to somewhat safer environments in the North. Her legacy can be found in the spiritual DNA she passes on to readers and writers and thinkers and dreamers who will read her words for generations to come. In her passing, She rightfully joins the ranks of the most influential humans ever to walk this earth. My ultimate takeaway from the celestial gift that Madame Morrison was is this. That if we can sit long enough in the presence of one another and be open to the experience of hearing one another's story, we can discover the things that we share in common with those who only moments ago we perhaps had considered the other, and somehow unworthy of our time. We have all, I believe, been made better by her presence here among us. May her wisdom, her guidance, and her 
incredible stories inform, inspire, and sustain us going forward in what are certain to be very difficult days ahead. If you are so inclined, don't forget to check out the content advisory. There's some archaic, if you will, language that is used in parts of the story. In any case, I'm very glad to be able to share this with you. So, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. And begin. Recitative by Toni Morrison. My mother danced all night, and Roberta's was sick. That's why we were taken to St. Bonnie's. People want to put their arms around you when you tell them you were in a shelter, but it really wasn't bad. No big, long room with 100 beds like Bellevue. There were four to a room, and when Roberta and me came, there was a shortage of state kids, so we were the only ones assigned to 406 and could go from bed to bed if we wanted to. And we wanted to, too. We changed beds every night, and for the whole four months we were there, we never picked one out as our own permanent bed. It didn't start out that way. The minute I walked in and the big bozo introduced us, I got sick to my stomach. It was one thing to be taken out of your own bed early in the morning. It was something else to be stuck in a strange place with a girl from a whole other race. And Mary... That's my mother. She was right. Every now and then, she would stop dancing long enough to tell me something important. And one of the things she said was that they never washed their hair and they smelled funny. Roberta sure did. Smell funny, I mean. So when the big bozo, nobody ever called her Mrs. Itkin, just like nobody ever said St. Bonaventure. When she said, Twyla, this is Roberta. Roberta, this is Twyla. Make each other welcome. I said, my mother won't like you putting me in here. Good, said Bozo. Maybe then she'll come and take you home. How's that for mean? If Roberta had laughed, I would have killed her, but she didn't. She just walked over to the window and stood with her back to us. Turn around, said the bozo. Don't be rude. Twyla, Roberta, when you hear a loud buzzer, that's the call for dinner. Come down to the first floor. Any fights and no movie. And then, just to make sure we knew what we would be missing, the Wizard of Oz. Roberta must have thought I meant that my mother would be mad about my being put in the shelter, not about rooming with her, because as soon as Bozo left, she came over to me and said, Is your mother sick too? No, I said. She just likes to dance all night. Oh, 
She nodded her head, and I liked the way she understood things so fast. So for the moment, it didn't matter that we looked like salt and pepper standing there. And that's what the other kids called us sometimes. We were eight years old and got Fs all the time. Me, because I couldn't remember what I read or what the teacher said. And Roberta, because she couldn't read at all and didn't even listen to the teacher. She wasn't good at anything, except Jack's, at which she was a killer. Pascoop. 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 We didn't like each other all that much at first. And nobody else wanted to play with us because we weren't real orphans with beautiful dead parents in the sky. We were dumped. Even the New York City Puerto Ricans and the upstate Indians ignored us. All kinds of kids were in there. Black ones, white ones, even two Koreans. The food was good, though. At least I thought so. Roberta hated it, and left whole pieces of things on her plate. Spam, Salisbury steak, even jello with fruit cocktail in it. And she didn't care if I ate what she wouldn't. Mary's idea of supper was popcorn and a can of Yoo-Hoo. Hot mashed potatoes and two weenies was like Thanksgiving for me. It really wasn't bad, St. Bonnie's. The big girls on the second floor pushed us around now and then. That was all. They wore lipstick and eyebrow pencil and wobbled their knees while they watched TV. Fifteen, sixteen even, some of them were. They were put-out girls. Scared runaways, most of them. Poor little girls who fought their uncles off but looked tough to us. And mean. God, did they look mean. The staff tried to keep them separate from the younger children, but sometimes they caught us watching them in the orchard where they played radios and danced with each other. They'd light out after us and pull our hair or twist our arms. We were scared of them, Roberta and me, but neither of us wanted the other one to know it. So we got a good list of dirty names we could shout back when we ran from them through the orchard. I used to dream a lot, and almost always, the orchard was there. Two acres, four, maybe, of these little apple trees, hundreds of them, empty and crooked like beggar women when I first came to St. Bonnie's, but fat with flowers when I left. I don't know why I dreamt about that orchard so much. Nothing really happened there. Nothing all that important, I mean. Just the big girls dancing and playing the radio. Roberta and me, watching. Maggie fell down there once. The kitchen woman with legs like parentheses. And the big girls laughed at her. We should have helped her up, I know, but we were scared of those girls with lipstick and eyebrow pencil. Maggie couldn't talk. The kids said she had her tongue cut out, but I think she was just born that way. Mute. She was old and sandy-colored, and she worked in the kitchen. I don't know if she was nice or not. I just remember her legs like parentheses and how she rocked when she walked. 
She worked from early in the morning till two o'clock. And if she was late, if she had too much cleaning and didn't get out till 2.15 or so, she'd cut through the orchard so she wouldn't miss her bus and have to wait another hour. She wore this really stupid little hat, a kid's hat with ear flaps, and she wasn't much taller than we were. A really awful little hat. Even for a mute, it was dumb, dressing like a kid and never saying anything at all. But what about if somebody tries to kill her? I used to wonder about that. Or what if she wants to cry? Can she cry? Sure, Roberta said. But just tears, no sounds come out. She can't scream? Nope. Nothing. Can she hear? I guess. Let's call her, I said. And we did. Dummy! Dummy! She never turned her head. Bowlegs! Bowlegs! Nothing. She just rocked on, the chin straps of her baby boy hat swaying from side to side. I think we were wrong. I think she could hear and didn't let on. And it shames me even now to think there was somebody in there after all who heard us call her those names and couldn't tell on us. We got along all right, Roberta and me. Changed beds every night, got F's in civics and communication skills and gym. The bozo was disappointed in us, she said. Out of 130 of us state cases, 90 were under 12. Almost all were real orphans with beautiful dead parents in the sky. We were the only ones dumped, and the only ones with F's in three classes, including Jim. So we got along, what with her leaving whole pieces of things on her plate and being nice about not asking questions. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I was hours into a hunt for new digs at the local shopping mall and losing steam fast when fate intervened. Drumsticks, get your drumsticks! Nutty, sweet drumstick! What luck! One drumstick, please. Here you go. This is hot and made of chicken. I want an ice-cold, creamy, crunchy drumstick sundae cone. You and me both, buddy. But that's the vendor next door. Drumsticks! But that line is three miles long! Oh, well. Another day, another drumstick. Save big money and start your spring project with help from Menards. We offer a huge selection of body plants, veggies, and herbs to plant at home and grow yourself. Right now, all four and a half inch body plants are on sale through May 5th. Head to the Menards Garden Center to get your garden growing 
and check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Now, let's get back to our story. I think it was the day before Maggie fell down that we found out our mothers were coming to visit us on the same Sunday. We had been at the shelter 28 days, Roberta 28 and a half, and this was their first visit with us. Our mothers would come at 10 o'clock in time for chapel, then lunch with us in the teacher's lounge. I thought if my dancing mother met her sick mother, it might be good for her. And Roberta thought her sick mother would get a big bang out of a dancing one. We got excited about it and curled each other's hair. After breakfast, we sat on the bed watching the road from the window. Roberta's socks were still wet. She washed them the night before and put them on the radiator to dry. They hadn't, but she put them on anyway because their tops were so pretty, scalloped in pink. Each of us had a purple construction paper basket that we had made in craft class. Mine had a yellow crayon ribbon on it. Roberta's had eggs with wiggly lines of color. Inside were cellophane grass and just the jelly beans because I'd eaten the two marshmallow eggs they gave us. The big bozo came herself to get us. Smiling, she told us we looked very nice and to come downstairs. We were so surprised by the smile we'd never seen before, neither of us moved. Don't you want to see your mommies? I stood up first and spilled the jelly beans all over the floor. Bozo's smile disappeared while we scrambled to get the candy up off the floor and put it back in the grass. She escorted us downstairs to the first floor, where the other girls were lining up to file into the chapel. A bunch of grown-ups stood to one side, viewers, mostly. The old biddies who wanted servants and the fags who wanted company, looking for children they might want to adopt. Once in a while, a grandmother... Almost never anybody young, or anybody whose face wouldn't scare you in the night. Because if any of the real orphans had young relatives, they wouldn't be real orphans. I saw Mary right away. She had on those green slacks I hated, and hated even more now because didn't she know we were going to chapel? And that fur jacket with the pocket linings so ripped she had to pull to get her hands out of them. But her face was pretty, like always, and she smiled and waved like she was the little girl looking for her mother, not me. I walked slowly, trying not to drop the jelly beans and hoping the paper handle would hold. 
I had to use my last chiclet because by the time I finished cutting everything out, all the Elmers was gone. I am left-handed, and the scissors never worked for me. It didn't matter, though. I might just as well have chewed the gum. Mary dropped to her knees and grabbed me, mashing the basket, the jelly beans, and the grass into her ratty fur jacket. Twyla, baby! Twyla, baby! I could have killed her. Already I heard the big girls in the orchard the next time saying, Twyla, baby! But I couldn't stay mad at Mary while she was smiling and hugging me and smelling of Lady Esther dusting powder. I wanted to stay buried in her fur all day. To tell the truth, I forgot about Roberta. Mary and I got in line for the trapes into chapel, and I was feeling proud because she looked so beautiful even in those ugly green slacks that made her behind stick out. A pretty mother on earth is better than a beautiful dead one in the sky, even if she did leave you all alone to go dancing. I felt a tap on my shoulder and turned and saw Roberta smiling. I smiled back, but not too much, lest somebody think this visit was the biggest thing that ever happened in my life. Then Roberta said, Mother, I want you to meet my roommate Twyla, and that's Twyla's mother. I looked up, it seemed, for miles. She was big. Bigger than any man, and on her chest was the biggest cross I'd ever seen. I swear it was six inches long each way, and in the crook of her arm was the biggest Bible ever made. Mary, simple-minded as ever, grinned and tried to yank her hand out of the pocket with the raggedy lining to shake hands, I guess. Roberta's mother looked down at me and then looked down at Mary, too. She didn't say anything, just grabbed Roberta with her Bible-free hand and stepped out of line, walking quickly to the rear of it. Mary was still grinning because she's not too swift when it comes to what's really going on. Then this light bulb goes off in her head, and she says, That bitch! Really loud, and us almost in the chapel now. Organ music whining, the Bonnie Angels singing sweetly. Everybody in the world turned around to look. And Mary would have kept it up, kept calling names, if I hadn't squeezed her hand as hard as I could. That helped a little, but she still twitched and crossed and uncrossed her legs all through the service, even groaned a couple of times. Why did I think she would come there and act right? Slacks, no hat, like the grandmothers and viewers, and groaning all the while. When we stood for hymns, she kept her mouth shut, wouldn't even look at the words on the page. She actually reached in her purse for a mirror to check her lipstick. All I could think of was that she really needed to be killed. The sermon lasted a year, and I knew the real orphans were looking smug again. We were supposed to have lunch in the teacher's lounge, but Mary didn't bring anything. So we picked fur and cellophane grass off the mashed jelly beans and ate them. I could have killed her. 
I sneaked a look at Roberta. Her mother had brought chicken legs and ham sandwiches and oranges and a whole box of chocolate-covered grams. Roberta drank milk from a thermos while her mother read the Bible to her. Things are not right. The wrong food is always with the wrong people. Maybe that's why I got into waitress work later, to match up the right people with the right food. Roberta just let those chicken legs sit there. But she did bring a stack of grams up to me later when the visit was over. I think she was sorry that her mother would not shake my mother's hand. And I liked that. And I liked the fact that she didn't say a word about Mary groaning all the way through the service and not bringing any lunch. Roberta left in May when the apple trees were heavy and white. On her last day, we went to the orchard to watch the big girls smoke and dance by the radio. It didn't matter that they said, Twyla, baby. We sat on the ground and breathed. Lady Esther. Apple blossoms. I, I still go soft when I smell one or the other. Roberta was going home. The big cross and the big Bible was coming to get her, and she seemed sort of glad and sort of not. I thought I would die in that room of four beds without her, and I knew Bozo had plans to move some other dumped kid in there with me. Roberta promised to write every day, which was really sweet of her because she couldn't read a lick, so how could she write anybody? I would have drawn pictures and sent them to her, but she never gave me her address. Little by little, she faded. Her wet socks with the pink scalloped tops and her big, serious-looking eyes. That's all I could catch when I tried to bring her to mind. I was working behind the counter at the Howard Johnson's on the thruway, just before the Kingston exit. Not a bad job. Kind of a long ride from Newburgh, but okay, once I got there. Mine was the second night shift, 11 to 7. Very light until a greyhound checked in for breakfast around 6.30. At that hour, the sun was all the way clear of the hills behind the restaurant. The place looked better at night. More like shelter. But I loved it when the sun broke in, even if it did show all the cracks in the vinyl and the speckled floor looked dirty no matter what the mop boy did. It was August, and a bus crowd was just unloading. They would stand around a long while, going to the john and looking at gifts and junk for sale. Machines, reluctant to sit down so soon, even to eat. I was trying to fill the coffee pots and get them all situated on the electric burners when I saw her. She was sitting in a booth smoking a cigarette with two guys smothered in head and facial hair. Her own hair was so big and wild I could hardly see her face, but the eyes, I would know them anywhere. She had on a powder blue halter and shorts outfit and earrings the size of bracelets. Talk about lipstick and eyebrow pencil. She made the big girls look like nuns. 
couldn't get off the counter until 7 o'clock, but I kept watching the booth in case they got up to leave before that. My replacement was on time for a change, so I counted and stacked my receipts as fast as I could and signed off. I walked over to the booths, smiling and wondering if she would remember me, or even if she wanted to remember me. Maybe she didn't want to be reminded of St. Bonnie's, or to have anybody know she was ever there. I know I never talked about it to anybody. I put my hands in my apron pockets and leaned against the back of the booth facing them. Roberta? Roberta Fisk? She looked up. Yeah? Twyla? She squinted for a second and then said, Wow. Remember me? Sure. Hey. Wow. It's been a while, I said, and gave a smile to the two hairy guys. Yeah. Wow. You work here? Yeah, I said. I live in Newburgh. Newburgh? <laughs> no kidding. She laughed, then a private laugh that included the guys, but only the guys. And they laughed with her. What could I do but laugh too and wonder why I was standing there with my knees showing out from under that uniform? Without looking, I could see the blue and white triangle on my head, my hair shapeless in a net, my ankles thick in white oxfords. Nothing could have been less sheer than my stockings. There was this silence that came down right after I laughed. A silence it was her turn to fill up, with introductions, maybe, to her boyfriends, or an invitation to sit down and have a Coke. Instead, she lit a cigarette off the one she'd just finished and said, We're on our way to the coast. He's got an appointment with Hendrix. She gestured casually to the boy next to her. Hendrix? Fantastic, I said. Really fantastic. What's she doing now? Roberta coughed on her cigarette, and the two guys rolled their eyes up at the ceiling. Hendrix? Jimmy Hendrix, asshole? He's only the biggest... Oh, wow. Forget it. I was dismissed without anyone saying goodbye, so I thought I would do it for her. How's your mother? I asked. Her grin cracked her whole face. She swallowed. Fine, she said. How's yours? Pretty as a picture, I said and turned away. The backs of my knees were damp. Howard Johnson's really was a dump in the sunlight. So, there we have part one of Recitative. What's clear to me uh, in this story is that at, at this point we know who, at least we feel like we know who these girls are, and we know the quality and the nature of their bond. 
they shared a brief but really important formative moment. I think she says it's four months. They were together four months at St. Bonnie's. And yet, in that time, there was this bond that was created by the grace that each was willing to extend to the other and that there didn't have to be any questions asked. The last thing that someone who's been left there wants to do is have to answer questions about their circumstance. The being different in that environment. Everybody else had pretty dead parents in the sky. If you were dumped there, you were abandoned. No matter the circumstances, the feeling was you were abandoned by your parent. And that's something that Twyla and Roberta share in common. What's interesting to me about their first encounter as as adults, and granted, they're probably young adults, late teens, early 20s at best. What's interesting to me is the apparent shift in the power dynamic between the two of them. Twyla is still in the assumption that their bond is the same as it always was, and yet Roberta reveals a callousness, a willingness to be disconnected from that bond. And whether it's simply the passage of time um, or the company that she's keeping or the agenda that she has in going to California, whatever the reasons are, there is distance. There, There is definitely a distance in that bond. There's been an obstacle placed there. There's something in the middle of their connection, diminishing its strength in this moment. Like all relationships, the dynamics continue to change throughout the story, and I'm really looking forward to getting to that part. I'm I'm also very eager for you to think about uh, this relationship um, between now and and next week, and what aspects of the relationship you relate to, what aspects of these characters that you might relate to. Without giving too much of it away, there's a bunch of stuff in here that's going on that isn't readily on the surface. And as such, I think this is a good place for us to pause, take a breath, ponder, and then come back next week. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads, as always, is Julia Marie Smith, the best in the business, with assistance from New York's own Harry Huggins and Renee Colvert right here in the City of Angels. Renee being one of my favorite human beings on the planet. A special shout out to Kristen Torres for story suggestions. Editing and sound design by Brendan Burns, who knew the kid was so talented. I want to express here my undying thanks to the estate of Toni Morrison for allowing me to read this story. Please go find more of her work. I guarantee you, you won't regret it. There's tons of fiction to explore, or you could begin with goodness and the literary imagination 
one of her nonfiction works, which includes a lecture by and interview with Ms. Morrison. And here's an idea. If you like listening to the show, why not recommend it to a friend who you think might enjoy it? And encourage that friend to also leave a ratings or a review on Apple Podcasts. You both might want to consider including a story suggestion for us. We read them. We love them. We use them. We'll be back next week with another hand-picked story. But if you don't want to wait that long, you don't have to. You can get next week's episode right now, plus exclusive bonus interviews on Stitcher Premium. Each story goes up one week early, and it's ad-free. Just go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar, or if you're listening in Stitcher, just tap the menu button in your app and select Premium for one month free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Media. Our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and yours truly, LeVar Burton. I am LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter, at LeVar Burton, and check out my newest series called This Is My Story. You'll find it on my Twitter feed and on YouTube. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Save big money in your next project with help from Menards. Move water where you need it quickly with a Barracuda sump pump. Sump pumps keep your basement dry when big storms hit unexpectedly. Get a half-horsepower cast-iron Barracuda sump pump on sale now through May 5th. Hurry into Menards and don't forget to check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money.